Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. Today's discussion is with my former UTA tennis coach, Christian Wesmer. I had so much fun speaking and reconnecting with Christian that we ended up running over our reserve time and I still had many questions left. This conversation reminded me of the things I have appreciated about Christian while he was my coach and what made him a great coach fit for me. I find Christian very self-aware. He is a critical thinker and a great storyteller, able to articulate his logic very clearly. As the UTA head coach, Christian set focus and creating trust while keeping things light and fun. Christian is an excellent communicator and always focused on why we're doing what we're doing. I believe this conversation does a great job showcasing that. Christian and I talk a lot about tennis, our college tennis journeys and different coaching styles, things we could have done better and things we have implemented to maximize our athletic potential. We dive into sports mindset, confidence, the importance of goal setting, injuries, sports in general, ethics in sports, anti-doping, and the meaning of sportsmanship. We also discuss creative problem solving, teamwork, collaboration, commitment, and cultural awareness needed when organizing Olympics, as Christian worked for the International Olympic Committee. Christian and I dive into all parts of his journey and career change decisions. I find his journey fascinating and I am amazed how he has been able to make career choices that align with his passion and talents and at the same time pushed him to learn more and grow. What also stood out to me were his transitions. The way I hear Christian narrate his journey, it appears that he has a strong sense of inner wisdom where at specific points of time he has decided to slow down or outside circumstances force him to slow down and re-examine his passion, growth, and what he wants to put his energy into next. Christian Wesmer is currently the CEO of Be The One Sports in Germany where he does sports consulting and management with different clients. His primary operations focus is on institutional consultancy, including governance, strategic planning, development, project management, and IOC recognition. You can find his website in the show notes, together with a link to a story he shares in the later part of the podcast, from Wall Street Journal on how they saved the men's alpine skiing Olympic championship in Sochi, Russia. Last but not least, Christian is a devoted husband and a father to two young daughters and lectures international sports, intercultural communication, and sports law at the Berlin Steinbeis University Bodensee campus. Here are some of my favorite quotes from this episode. On navigating career changes, you are happy, you are successful, do you really want to move forward? Ask yourself, do you really want to do something different? On the importance of focus and goal setting, the key ingredient is to focus on the next step. The next step allows us to focus on the goals. 
Setting goals is super important, but to set realistic goals is almost equally important. If you set a goal too high, it is good because you will improve. But sometimes you might not know where you're going. If the path in front of you is not laid out properly, it might be difficult to achieve the big goal or to make a change. Now with the next step approach, with smaller steps that are achievable, people are more likely to succeed. About tennis, coach and player fit, style of coaching. This is why tennis is such a fascinating sport, because you can become successful with so many different ways of coaching and playing. It just seemed that this style of coaching and focus on my strength fit me better than trying to improve my weaknesses. On transferring to a different university. Something wasn't right for me in the environment. I didn't feel 100% comfortable. This episode was recorded in February. However, due to life and my backlog, I just got into releasing it now. I hope you'll have as much fun listening to this as I had recording it. Thank you and enjoy the listen. Hey, Clara, how are you? Hello, coach. How is everything in Germany? Are you in Germany, actually? Yeah, it's going fine. We're just like a lot of people, I guess, family in the corona pandemic that are having their little challenges. But overall, it's it's going quite well. We got two girls, uh, 11-year-old and the six-year-old. And the 11-year-old is in distance learning due to the pandemic. And the little one, she can go to school. Great. So question I'm going to start with, a bit unusual. What are you wearing, Christian? I'm wearing a blue sweater. I'm wearing uh, shorts to my knees. And I would say some unique uh, shoes. They're made out of felt. So I wear them when I'm uh, in the house. But yeah, I'm quite casual. Let's put it that way. Relatively professional on top and then quite casual on the bottom. Yeah, that seems to be everybody nowadays, my daily call routine. I typically have shorts or workout pants at the bottom and have a nice top. Today, I'm wearing a UTA Mavericks tennis shirt. All right. <laughs> we'll dive in back to the tennis game. So I figured it may be fitting for this conversation. To start with, I always give my uh, guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. Is there a specific way you would want to be introduced? I grew up in Germany close to the Lake of Constance, which is in the very south of Germany. Went to school, graduated high school at the age of 19, then went to the United States on a tennis scholarship. I played a year in Richmond, Virginia at Virginia Commonwealth University, and then I went to a smaller Southern Baptist school called Washington Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. The Tigers, which I really, really enjoyed. And I think throughout those three years, a big part of my personality developed. So this was until 1998, from 1993 to 1998. Then I moved to Japan and I spent a good year in uh, Japan my university in the United States had an exchange program with the university in Fukuoka City in Kyushu in Japan. It's on the most southern, uh, bigger islands in Japan. 
And so I studied traditional Japanese culture and language there. Then I went back to Arkansas for about half a year. And in 1999, then I moved to Texas, to Arlington, Texas, became an assistant coach at the University of Texas at Arlington for the men's and uh, women's tennis team. I mainly worked with the women's tennis team. And then about three years into the job, the head coach who had hired me, Coach Patrick Dubois, he left. He left because of family reasons. I took over both programs, then hired assistant coach at the time, Diego Benitez, who is still at UTA, the head coach, which is unbelievable. What an achievement. Until 2006, I was then the head tennis coach for both programs. And still then, I mainly worked with the women's tennis team. During the last four years in Arlington, I also started working for German sports media. I had a lot of job with the NBA because Dirk Nowitzki, former German professional basketball player, played for the Dallas Mavericks. And so I covered about 84 games. I also wrote for German print media about the same subject, so mainly NBA basketball. And then in about 2003, I got to know my now wife better. I got to know my wife already in 1999 because she also played at the University of Texas at Arlington, of course. But we got together in 2003. And then in the next three years, basically, we discussed where we would want to live or what we would like to do. And so the idea came pretty fast to the point where we decided we wanted to move back to Europe. So we didn't really know where to move to. So a Czech and a German, where do you move to? And so there were a lot of things going through our head. But the number one driving force was basically, where can we find a job for the both of us? So I talked to a couple of friends that I had, and then there was a position opening at a tennis academy in Lucerne, Switzerland, which was looking for coaches at the time. So then I flew over, had an interview, also said I have a wonderful wife that can also coach tennis. And so this was a matter of 30 minutes where it was decided then they offered us the job. And then in 2006, we both moved to Lucerne, Switzerland and uh, became part of the tennis academy. And then in 2008, I had an accident building a temporary indoor tennis facility and I hurt my foot really bad at the time now it's fine but it gave me time to think what I want to do in the future because physically I was not as fit as you should be if you're on the court every day so I had got this idea into my head that I would like to go back to school and study sports management so in 2009 I got a master's in sports management in Lausanne in Switzerland and then I knocked on the door at the International Olympic Committee, whose headquarters are in Lausanne, so at the same place. And there was a job opening. They hired me. And so then I worked at the IRC from 2009 to 2011. Uh, I worked with summer sports. And then in 2011, I was promoted to the head of winter sports and head of Olympic winter games. And also the recognition of sports. That's maybe something that we'll talk about a little bit later on what sports is or, or what does that mean 
is a sport recognized or not by the IOC. And I stayed in that position all the way until 2016. And then we got our first child in 2010 and our second child in 2014. So then we had two kids living in Switzerland. And then there were more discussions with my wife. And then we decided to move to Germany in 2016. Then there was a transition period where I, in 2017, was hired by a regional tennis federation. So this is from a a region under the German National Tennis Federation as the CEO. I did not stay there very long because I came to the realization relatively quickly that I do want something different. And what was that? What did I want to do different? I wanted to be independent. And uh, so in 2017, I decided to start my own company, which is now called Be The One, which we can talk uh, more in detail later what I do. But I'm basically a consultant for international sports federations and international organizations. I also have a couple of companies that I work for that at first, there doesn't really seem to be a link to sports. So the question might be, what do I do for them? But I can explain And so I've been independent since 2017, going on four years. And like many self-employed people currently, at least in Europe, I can speak for, we're trying to survive the Corona pandemic uh, challenge because sport has been hit pretty hard by it. And that's where I am right now. Wow, I love that introduction. Thank you. And I have three pages of notes. (laughs) So I would love to dive into many of those key points that you mentioned and maybe just high level comment first the way you go through the route and you explain it looking back looks so natural knowing you and the progress it seems just natural next step to take but I know the intersection that we're at at specific times of our lives are rather more hesitant and we're pondering what is the right step to make so i just want to commend you on the choices and it looks exactly suited to you and your skills the way you said the story and how you progress through the different transitions of your career thank you very much i think the key clara what you said are the next steps so on the one side the intermediate steps because it sounds so easy when you summarize it the intermediate steps they are the really really tough ones. Those are the times when you ask yourself, do you really want to do something different? You're happy right now, you're successful. Do you really want to move forward? But the key ingredient that I could tell anybody is to really focus on the next steps. So in other words, I never had this long, long term goal. For example, a tennis coach in Arlington at that point, I never thought that I want to work for the IOC or I want to be independent. I took it step by step. I was like, okay, I want to go to Europe, so I got to find a job. I got that job. I was happy there. Then something else developed, for example. So I think the next step allows us to focus on the goals because to set goals, obviously, is super, super important. But of course, to set realistic goals is almost as equally important because if you set the goal too high, I think it's still good because you're going to improve But you might not really know where you're going then sometimes. If the path in front of you is not really laid out properly, 
then it might be difficult to change to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Now with the next steps approach, so smaller steps that are achievable, I think people are more likely to succeed. Doesn't sound so sexy, but I think it could be easier. Yes, I agree. And I think what you're mentioning is quite a bit related to the sports mindset and going back to tennis, because I compare everything in life to tennis. Even within a game match or point, you want to focus on the right habits and next steps. So how do I hit this forehand? Where do I hit it? If you focus on winning the match, you're going to get super nervous and cramped up and it's going to drive sort of the negative, just wanting that typically creates a stress and it's not productive. But if you break things down in life, whether it's in sport or even I do it quite a bit in business, when I have a deal, I try to break it down to smaller steps for the team to understand and progress. So first achieve those little wins and then lay out a path that will hopefully get you to the end point. It is the one thing to talk about and put in practice on a tennis court, another thing to talk about and put in practice in the whole life and your career transition. Great job on mastering that practice in your real life. I would like to dive into your upbringing. How was it to grow up in Germany and how's your upbringing? I know you did two sports, skiing and tennis. I love both of them. You competed at top national level in both. I'm curious how you did that and achieved that because they're both very different from each other. Yes, so they are very different. My father loved both. He skied all of his life. And so he took my sister and I on the ski slope very early. I think I was two years old when I started skiing. And the same with my sister. On the tennis side, he was unbelievably supportive and very involved in tennis, but he didn't start playing tennis himself until he was 40 years old and he taught the game himself. So for me, the decision then, now looking back on it, it became quite easy on what to focus on. And it had something to do with the notion of opportunity or fairness, so to speak, because regionally in both sports, I was on top in tennis and in alpine skiing. Then On the national level in alpine skiing, it looked a little bit different. So there's just a couple of uh, bigger regions in Germany that do winter sport. And one is certainly Bavaria, where I'm not from. And later, when I was 14 and 15 years old, I had this feeling that because of less training opportunities than some of my competitors that came from snowy mountainous areas, I would have to sacrifice too much. I mean, we all have to sacrifice to be really great in sports. But I felt like tennis gave me a better shot because tennis, you can play and train everywhere year around. And uh, if I would have been more serious in skiing, probably at some point, I would have had to move and maybe go to a ski school or to a ski academy. And at that stage, the advantages of tennis were just bigger, meaning I felt like I could stay at home, I could still see my friends and go to school. And probably that was the reason why I chose tennis over skiing. And also, and this is quite subjective, so please don't, (laughs) I hope that no tennis player will take this personally because uh, I, I guess I can speak about it because I was a tennis player myself. But now looking back on it, I just don't think I was tough enough to be an alpine skier. 
because even at a younger age, the early mornings, you know, getting up at three and four in the morning, the crashes, hitting the gates when I competed in slalom or giant slalom, I was too weak. I constantly complained that it's too cold, it hurts and so forth. So, I mean, it goes without saying that you have to be really, really tough in tennis, especially mentally, if you want to get anywhere. But at the time, this was a factor. I just felt like skiing is, is really, really tough. It's tough on the body, for sure. And there's always a risk. So I didn't have this last percent that is absolutely needed in me that I could say, yeah, I think I would have succeeded in alpine skiing. Mm. I love that story. And it's funny, now that you say it, it relates a lot. I loved skiing. And obviously, I had to stop skiing as soon as I started playing tennis more seriously, because the coaches were saying, well, if you go skiing, you get injured, then you can't play tennis, it's going to impact your tennis tournament and ranking. So as my tennis focus progressed, I had to put skiing on the back burner just by that default. But at around eight or nine years old, my mom hired a skiing instructor for me in the Czech mountains. And it seemed like I was quite talented and I was learning pretty quick. And I loved going down the hill fast. It was really fun for me. But it was similar. What you mentioned, we didn't live close to the ski mountains. And mountains in Czech are even worse right? than in Germany or Austria. You don't have the big hills. So that was additional hurdle there. But he pretty much said I would have to move to the Czech mountains, which was four or five hours drive at that age and train there and be there to start being uh, serious about it. So that pretty much ruled that option. But uh, it's interesting how similar it is. And also the thing about skiing in the winter I get cold hands and feet. So now looking back, it was probably a really good decision from my parents that I uh, didn't go into being... Uh... Exactly how I felt, Clara. If you share this with a lot of people, they start thinking that we're weak or how can that be? But it's also those little things that you mentioned that bothered me. You know, the coldness at the feet or, for example, I and I think it's part of sports, but before the competition... Some athletes, they are nervous, right? It's part of the sport. So mm -hmm. when I was nervous in tennis and I had to go to the bathroom, I just went to the bathroom. And like a lot of players, there was no big deal because of the facility and so forth. What really killed me in skiing too was that about five minutes before the start, I had to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Depending on where the race was or what the scenario was, wasn't so easy. Yes. <laughs> of course, you always find a way, but it just wasn't, as comfortable as I thought it would be. Interestingly enough, I think both you and I might have the personality that if at some point we would have really seen the opportunity in skiing, maybe this could have changed to, to change the mindset again to say, okay, I am willing to move from home. I am willing to travel even more because in retrospect, that's what we really did in tennis, right? In tennis, then at some point we decided... Yeah, that's what we want to do. So then your mindset can change and say, hey, I'm going to invest and I'm going to go this extra mile in order to get better. But at the point, I just wasn't there mentally to be successful for skiing, for sure. So you chose tennis by sort of natural board elimination and progression. It seemed like it suited your personality a bit more and just the challenges of not being close to the mountains. 
and then you ended up playing and competing in national level. When you came to US, did you came on a tennis scholarship? You mentioned your first university in Virginia, Richmond. That's correct, yes. How did you make that decision? This was in early 90s and my parents were super super supportive. Obviously, they supported me all of my life in my athletic career. However, uh, where I grew up or in the environment there I grew up, the step to say that I'm going to turn professional at the time when I was 19, that was still something that was reserved for I would say trailblazers or people that really had a lot of guts that say okay I'm going to put all of my eggs in one basket and that part I was not confident in I was not ready to commit to hire a coach to play future small tournaments to see how far I could get so I knew I wanted to continue to play tennis at the time there were a couple of in particular Americans that went through the college tennis ranks and then made it to the professional level so somewhere in the back of my mind i still thought well i can do both i can play college tennis and then see how i develop and even though i think the realistic chance for me at the time was relatively small but it still played a factor that i could still turn pro but i basically took the safe bet knowing i want to play full time tennis that was not an option in germany uh, when you finish high school you choose you want to study you want to work you want to turn professional i was not ready to turn professional but i knew i want to continue to play tennis seriously so then i had a swedish coach in my hometown here who also played college tennis and he told me about it many many years since i was 13 so he planted this idea into my head that you should go to the united states play college tennis and uh, get a degree at the same time And so as a 13-year-old I was already very much uh, motivated and what also was a big factor I would say when I was 10 years old I went to the US by myself to visit relatives I flew by myself but I was picked up at the airport in the US and I spent about six weeks by myself with that family in the US and this was just everything so impressive so overwhelming and when i came back so from 10 to 13 i was constantly thinking how can i find a way to move to the us and then when i was 13 this former coach of mine suggested you can play college tennis and that was my motivation then and from then on it was pretty much clear that this is most likely the pathway that i'm going to take and it helped me a lot in school because i really focused a lot on athletics until i was 13 or 14 but i finally knew or i finally realized that in order to get to the us i also need to get a high school degree and so i started to study more and school became much easier as it was before you then had a motivation and bigger purpose and that drove you to focus on what do you need to do now it seems like going back to where we started the podcast what do you need to do now in order to get to your next step yes for sure how did you pick richmond uh, virginia it's funny we had a friend who played there he left the year before me when i was uh, 13 i met this guy here on our national tennis circuit and we became good friends and i told him about it so i actually made the call to the university when i was 17 two years before i was actually eligible to start college and said hey i have a friend he's really good he's looking for a school 
And so he was contacted by Virginia Commonwealth at the time, and he decided to go there. And then for me, after talking to him, he was already there for a year. Basically, the decision was quite easy that I'm also going to go there. Was a just a tremendous uh, tennis program. When I got there in 1993, we were number eight in the nation in Division One, and had a very successful season, like went to the national indoor tournament, for example, as a team and as an individual. So it was a really, really good team. And actually, now I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but about 10 years later, when I played there for that one year, we felt like that this was probably the height of the program. We didn't think there would be any other way that a public school like Virginia Commonwealth without a football program, so very similar to the University of Texas at Arlington, was able to be in the top 10 of the country. However, uh, we managed anyway because everything at the school at the time was focused on tennis. But 10 years later, actually, I was checking on ESPN and, of course, college tennis doesn't get that much coverage on ESPN. But I just saw a headline and it said, today, national final Stanford against Virginia Commonwealth. So 10 years later, that coach that is still there, he actually took the the program one step further and they lost in the finals of the national championship against Stanford. So a major, major tennis powerhouse at the time, they still are. And so it was a good spot for me to land there, I would say. Yeah, that's fantastic. And reaching the finals and nationals, that is tremendous success. What made you transfer? You mentioned you transferred after first year to Arkansas. Yes, I did not play as well as I thought I would play or I didn't play as well as I was expected to play. I would say both from my coach's side and also from my own side. I was a top 10 junior in Germany before I left. I had a benchmark on the team, as I told you, good friend of mine that I grew up with who played on the team. He played number two. And when I got to Virginia Commonwealth University, starting of the season, I played number five and six singles. And uh, I had the worst record on the team. Now, that sounds a bit drastic, the worst record on the team. We played quite a strange schedule, Clara. So my record was 16 and five. I won 16 matches and I lost five, but it was still the worst record on the team. Because the way Virginia Commonwealth played at the time, the coach scheduled a lot of easy matches. Mm. So that the record would, at the beginning of the season, we would start the first three weeks and would be 10-0 and 0 every single time. He scheduled all the weaker teams in the area and we would really beat up on them and we would win every match like really, really easy. And then he came to the harder competition in the region and in the nation and basically most of the important matches or really close matches I ended up losing in that first year. And I couldn't really figure out why. I mean, a lot of tennis players are looking for excuses why that is. I felt at the time that I should play higher in the lineup, much higher, actually. However, my scores or my results, they didn't really support my argument. I felt like I had the personality that I can serve a team much better if I play higher in the lineup than lower in the lineup. And obviously, looking back at it, you know, this is something on one side, very selfish to say. I mean, this is something you're like, oh, but 
are you serious? Like you wanted to play a team sport and then you're not happy. I mean, I was constructive. I wasn't negative towards any of my teammates or my coach. That's absolutely clear. But I didn't feel like I could help the team as much as I could as if I were to play higher. And it didn't help, of course, that our number one was one of the best players in the country. And so throughout the season, I ended up playing number four. I played number one doubles, but still something wasn't right for me in the environment. I didn't feel 100% comfortable. Maybe there again, at that age or at that point in my life, I was still a little bit too soft, mentally too soft to fight through this and to face the adversity, something then later on, I think I dealt with quite well. But at the time, I mean, we tried everything, Clara. Like I went to an eye doctor test. I got contact lenses. I changed rackets and so forth. Constantly, I was thinking there's no way I'm playing as bad as I am, theoretically, because it didn't make sense. My game was quite suitable for the hard court. So that was no reason like what a lot of Europeans face that they say, well, you know, I really came from the clay courts and I don't like to play on hard court. That was certainly not the case. But so something just wasn't right. And then the coach in Arkansas and the coach in Richmond, they were childhood friends and they talked over the phone and the coach in Arkansas wanted to build a new team and he was looking for players basically. And my coach at Virginia Commonwealth told the coach uh, at Russia Baptist that he thinks he has the right guy to start his program. And that's when I decided then to leave. And it also was a financial decision on top, because as you're familiar with it on the men's side in college tennis, it's important for coaches sometimes to manage the money that he has available for the team, four and a half scholarships. So I certainly would have been reduced. Uh, my scholarship would have been reduced at Virginia Commonwealth. And in Arkansas, I would have had the same deal or even a better deal that I had uh, at VCU. So the financial aspect also was a factor. Yeah, that makes sense. How was your relationship with the coach at Virginia Commonwealth? I'm wondering how that shaped your game and thinking. Believe it or not, it, it was very good, actually. <laughs> I'm laughing now because uh, in hindsight, sometimes I wish... We would have known the things back then that we know now. No, we got along great. His coaching style was more on the old school, tougher one, like meaning pushing you tremendously in a good way, putting some pressure on you to perform. For him, it was always important that as long as you bring your results, as long as you play well outside of the tennis court, you can pretty much do whatever you want. So there were a few things that... At the time, I didn't really agree with. And so I would say, looking at the sport of tennis, we were not 100% on the same line, but I have to give it to him at the time. It was quite immature, but I did learn a lot for him later on. And then my new coach, probably not a surprise, then he had a complete different personality. He was much more in the supporting mode, in focusing on your strengths rather than weaknesses. So it just fit me better. As an example, I had a quite a complete game and I probably just had one weakness. So at Virginia Commonwealth, we constantly focused on that weakness to improve it. Whereas in Arkansas, my coach told me, listen, your serve is big, your forehand is big, your volley is good. Don't worry about your backhand. You don't need your backhand. It's good enough to stay in the point. 
So let's just focus on your strength. And I think this is why tennis is such a fascinating sport because you can become successful with so many different ways of coaching and playing. It just seemed that this part to focus on my strength fit me better than trying to improve my weaknesses. Yeah. Thank you for comparing those two differences because you mentioned that when you were in Arkansas, that's what shaped majority of who you are and how you operate. And it seems from what you described is that just the second coaching style was a better fit and you felt more comfortable in something that allowed you to get more of trust in yourself, confidence and develop you as a tennis player and a person. Yeah. What changed also immediately, I always, in all of the teams that I played before growing up, whether it was for the federation or whether it was for the clubs, I was always very natural in helping all of my teammates, in supporting them, in helping them to improve. They helped me to improve a lot. Mm. And so at Virginia Commonwealth, I had this feeling that, well, I'm not really one of the better players. So as a younger player, some of the older ones or better ones or more experienced, there's not that much I can give them. And this was part of the feeling, life is how it is. I was 19 years old. I'm sure if I were to get the opportunity again, there's many other ways how I could have dealt with it. But at the time then when I came to Arkansas, all of a sudden I had the feeling that people are listening to me and I was willing to be very open and contribute. I'm not saying I didn't have the idea as a 19-year-old freshman to revolutionize the game of tennis or to revolutionize the team. That's not really what I mean. I was just more very natural in always talking to my teammates about the game and so forth. It just wasn't my time at that point, which is understandable because I'm a freshman, but I don't know how it was for you as a European coming there. You want to play well right away. You don't really have this culture in you that you say, okay, I'm going to be a freshman. I'm just going to try to learn from everybody now. I just didn't have this in me. My motivation was at such that I wanted to be the best player on the team right away. And the reality was that I was not. And so basically that was the situation. Right. Thank you for sharing all of that. Can you tell me more about your Arkansas Tigers or any highlights you want to share? Culturally, it wasn't that big of a difference within the team. At Virginia Commonwealth, I had six Swedish teammates. At Washington Baptist in Arkansas, I had seven Swedish teammates. Oh. So this is for, for some people that listen. They're like thinking Sweden and tennis, what is happening? On that part, I was very comfortable. I had a lot of Swedish teammates. My coach at Virginia Commonwealth was Swedish. My last three coaches in Germany before I had left were Swedish. So obviously in the 80s and 90s, the Swedish guys, and it's really guys that we're talking about because somehow the women's game never really developed in Sweden, even during that height of that Swedish dominance. So from that point of view, I fit right in. The coach was American. The school was tiny at Virginia Commonwealth. When I was there, the enrollment was 28,000. At uh, Washington Baptist, it was 1,500. So really, really small school. We played in a division called the NAIA, very interesting organization. It's basically a group of private schools that compete nationally, that have a national championship. 
that is played in singles, basically a huge draw. So each team puts all of their players in a draw, a 256 draw. And so you play the individual national championship and the team championship in the same draw. So if you win your first match, for example, your school gets one point and so forth. So for the first two years I played in NAIA, we were quite successful. We ended up at number five in the nation at NAIA. I played number one and two for the team. And then in my final year in Arkansas, the school moved to NCAA Division II. So basically, I played at Virginia Commonwealth Division I, then two years in NAIA, and then my final year in NCAA Division II. So other than junior college and Division III, I got the full college experience. And then I played much better. Obviously, the competition one could argue, was not nearly as strong as on the Division I level. A lot of times it came down to a couple of tough matches at the end of the year. But nevertheless, it was a much better fit for me. And uh, what I'm really happy about in my senior year then, there is a national award called the Arthur Ashe Sportsmanship and Leadership Award that goes to one player in the nation for various achievements on and off the court in the tradition of uh, American college sports awards that are being given in all of the sports. But at the time, this was quite a big deal for the school and I won that. And it was this whole time, constant motivation, constant winning on my part, supporting the teammates. And I started to play better and better to the point where I probably played one of my best tournaments then at the nationals of my final year. So it took me really four years to play my best tennis. And I wish college tennis wouldn't be limited to four years. However, those are the rules. It's in my senior year where all of a sudden so many things that I questioned before that I didn't understand before, they all seemed to click. And I was so much more motivated to be in the best physical shape that I could be in. And I finally understood that you need to be physically fit in order to play your best tennis i mean this is something now when you hear me speaking about it you might say but christian like where have you been that's quite obvious well at the time it wasn't that obvious i mean i was fit i was always fit when i played but i wasn't as fit as i could be and when i reached that ultimate fitness level for me my confidence went even more up the coach in arkansas he always ran a timed mile. So when I got there as a sophomore, I ran a 6.10. And then in my junior year, I ran a 5.40. And then in my senior year, I ran a 4.95. Wow. Now, when I think about the 4.95 today, that is crazy for somebody that never had any background in track and field or was not really a good runner. But I was in such, from my standards superior shape that the track and field coach said hey we have a meet this weekend maybe you want to run the mile for us so i improved my mile time by over a minute and a half within a couple of years so yeah i got all business all of a sudden got very serious about the sport finally uh, nutrition i understood the mental part of it and so that really made me into a much better player then wow thank you for sharing that story and there are so many things I would love to highlight. Where do we want to go from there? Maybe go back to even your reflection. It's very unique that you played the Division One 
NAIA and the Division Two NCAA, you really went through almost the whole college tennis experience. When you look back, do you have one that you preferred playing or was more fun just from the structure of the games and the competition aspect? I definitely preferred the smaller settings. So there's not that big of a difference, of course, between NAI and Division Two compared to Division One. I. I think Division One is the big difference. And what's the big difference is the size of the school, the constant national competition, even in the regular season. On the NAI and Division Two level, you have much smaller schools. So you play each other more. Most of the schools we play twice a year. So over the years, you get to know them quite well. Of course, in conference play in Division One, you also get the opportunity. But it's not really the point I'm trying to make. Everything is a little bit familiar. And it seems in hindsight, growing up in Germany, where I grew up, so many factors that led into it. Maybe the Division One, the whole concept, everything was at the beginning, was a bit too big for me at the time. It's funny now when I look back at the other things that I did, But I just felt much more confident in a smaller setting. Also at the school itself, you knew all of the teachers, you knew all of the athletes. Obviously, with 1,500 students, that's not very hard uh, to do. That's like the size of an average high school, even a small high school in some countries. I would say I prefer definitely the NAI and the Division II level because it was easier to understand the system. You were able to feel comfortable much quicker. And Then tying back on the nutrition, and you said your fourth year, you played your best tennis because of the physical shape, athleticism, mindset. Anything there you would want to unpack more? I know we can probably have another two hours discussion just on these topics, but I'm curious as you reflect, what are the key nutrition aspects that you were able to highlight to improve and then even the mindset? that you practiced and gained that helped you improve? One aspect was I finally bought into the concept of uh, how weights can support you, how they can make you a better tennis player. Mm. I was very critical when I came to the U.S. when it comes to weights. All of my teammates at Virginia Commonwealth, they were lifting weights almost on a daily basis. This is something at the time, and remember this was in 1993 in Virginia, For me, this was a concept that I didn't really agree with at the time. It's just amazing that I say that now, but it's true. And so I always loved a lot of running and a lot of playing, but I didn't really see the need to do weights. Then I moved to Arkansas. And again, a lot of my teammates, they did weights. And little by little, I caught on and I did more weights. And in doing weights and in doing a lot of running, my body reached a point where I felt like it even needs to change more but I'm already doing everything that I can on the court and in the weight room. And so then I looked at nutrition in the context of being the 90s where nutrition was not nearly as developed as it is now. What I always focused on, even in juniors, was the match preparation. When I grew up as a junior, I knew that nutrition is important, but the reality meant I always started eating healthy maybe two or three days before the tournament. What changed in Arkansas was that it became part of my daily routine. I tried to reduce fat. I ate more vegetables. I reduced carbohydrates. So a lot of the things that we now do in many of the diets, those ideas were already around, obviously, for athletes. 
I finally bought into it and this really helped improve my game tremendously, added to, to the confidence that I was really comfortable and uh, secure with my body, knowing that once I stepped on the court, there was everything that I could possibly do to be ready. And not just a couple of days before the competition, but every single day of the year. So for those one or two years, and even a year after, unfortunately, this should have lasted longer. But this really became part of my daily routine. To be constantly aware that uh, even though I might not have a tournament for a couple of weeks, it's still important how I take care of my body. Yes. And I would say those two things you mentioned are really great examples. The weights, even from my own experience, and I'm not sure if this is the European or many tennis players, because even in my era, when I was growing up in Czech, we did a huge amount of running, conditioning, endurance, especially in the fall to really get the mileage in and what we would call mainly bulk up. But we've always done a very few weights. Because there was this mindset of, well, weights are not that important for whatever reason. And when I came my freshman year, maybe even my second year at UTA, I started doing a lot of Olympic lifting, which I still do nowadays. I especially like the Olympic lifting because it's a whole body movement. It's actually very fun because it requires whole body exercise and even technique to lift the right weight. And I feel that was also a big differentiator for me and something that seems tennis players in general are quite hesitant about or have been at that point of time. And the nutrition is definitely something when I look back at my college tennis career and how I eat now, there is so much room for improvement. If you look back on your nutrition, and I believe when I met you once, were you doing some sort of keto type or paleo? How do you look at nutrition now, even as we get more information and your college experience? How would that compare what you find to be best for physical performance? Would you change it based on what you know now? Yep, there would still be a few things that I would tweak. And interesting enough, Looking at some of the high-performance centers here in Germany, I still think there is a huge amount of room for improvement for younger tennis players and probably also other sports. I think the mindset has changed quite a bit to where certain things are clear now to everybody that they don't really help your performance. For example, artificial sugar or sweets, most athletes today they realize that especially if they're not in training, it's probably not a good idea to eat a lot of sugar, especially if you're not in training. One thing that I'm doing now or that I've come to the realization is I hope it's a sustainable trend. I would eat less meals for sure. Growing up, we always had this notion of having five meals a day. So three main meals and then two small snacks in between. And even until the longest time, people or sports medicine was under the understanding that you're an athlete, you have to constantly, in a good way, in a healthy way, good nutrition, you have to constantly eat for your body to stay active. And so one of the things that I do right now is the frequency of eating has been reduced a lot. So most of the days I only eat uh, two times a day. And it has helped, at least that's how I see it currently. It's helping me a lot when it comes to being able to sleep, in being able to focus, being able to recover. 
And thinking back a bit, Clara, you know, sometimes it's quite sobering when I think back of when I worked as a coach or when I did certain things the way I did, how many mistakes we did at the time because either of ignorance or just because we didn't know it better at the time. Mm-hmm. As a junior, I remember sometimes the night before a match, I would sometimes eat just five, six plates of pasta. <laughs> I know. Because somebody told me it's really, really good. Then in the morning, I would wake up and I was just dead. I mean, I was just exhausted from eating and that the body had to digest all of this food overnight. And it took me forever to realize it. I was really happy when my matches were in the afternoon. This is incredibly stupid to somebody that listens to it now. Is like, how could you not have known that? Or how didn't you know that? At the time, my parents, my coaches, they were like, yeah, before a match, you have to eat a lot, a lot of pasta. I'm not saying pasta is bad before a match, but everything in moderation, I would say. I agree. And funny, that's another thing that seems to be stereotyped either from the era I grew up or tennis players. There's some obsession with tennis players and carbs. It seems like we think the carbing up is the right thing to do before the match. And now I completely, I'm, I'm been on a keto diet the past six months or over six months. And everybody responds to diets slightly different. But I find that serves me and supports me the best, even from mindset and thinking. And as you mentioned, eating few meals a day, exactly what do you do? So two meals, intermittent fasting. I've done different fastings, even three, four day fasts, completely with just water every month for two. It's interesting how the mindset would have changed now versus the food I ate back when I came to U.S. And when I came, it was the low sugar, high carbs, no meat. That sort of thing right when I came to the U.S., the trend of nutrition. And when I look back at it, I really think that contributed to a lot of my inflammation that I got in my second and third year and probably just injuries because I wasn't getting the right nutrition when I take into consideration the amount of training and volume that I have done after you left my second and third year that I also overtrained. Like we had friends and people, including myself, you could hear people say, I don't eat any sugar, but I eat a lot of pasta and bread, <laughs> right? Yes, and that directly translates. Like, it's crazy, but that's what it was. But it's like the same, same thing. It's the same thing. You are eating yes. sugar if you eat pasta, but at the time, Honestly, there was a difference between sugar and and pasta, for example, right? It's funny how we don't translate that into, well, carbs do translate into pretty much sugar. And actually, the more carbs you eat, you start craving more carbs. That's the danger of it because of that nature. So a few more questions about your college. And I'm very curious, hopefully we can stay within the time. Communications, what made you choose to study communications? Growing up, other than a tennis player, I wanted to be a journalist. Mm. I always thought that telling people stories or reporting on events caught my attention quite early in high school. I wasn't so confident at the time in high school because I wasn't the best student in German, especially in writing. So I was like, yeah, I don't know. Not sure I could ever be a writer if my grades, even in the German essays and so forth, I get it back and there's a lot of red on it. But then, of course, I saw the opportunity, hey, there's more to 
communications and media than print journalism, even though later on I ended up working for print journalism, but that's all other story. But so I discovered other ways. I all of a sudden see, hey, there's television, there's radio, obviously not a big surprise. I was quite keen on exploring the different ways of journalism Then I was always sports enthusiast. So when I was 15, 16, when somebody asked me what I want to do, I told them I want to be a sports journalist. This is one of those goals that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast that to set goals is really important and finding some steps, some intermediate steps to get there. That choice was relatively easily made. So I decided to study mass communications and had a great experience, got exposed to all the different parts of media at both schools, actually, and in Arkansas on a really, really practical level where we were able to cover different sporting events already and where people were able to put you in front of a camera or microphone or behind the camera or into a production room where you were able to edit and cut film. Even throughout the academic part, I still believe that this is something that I wanted to do. And then uh, this one I had no clue about until I read on your website and you mentioned Then you went to Japan for a year to study the culture and language. How did you make that choice? Believe it or not, it's a crazy story. I went to the library in Arkansas and uh, there was a flyer. And on that flyer, it read one year exchange program between Washa Baptist University and Simon Gakuin Daigaku. This is the university in Fukuoka City. What do you need to do? You need to apply. If you apply, you get a full scholarship. Basically, your job is to study Japanese culture and tradition and then be available for some English teaching. So the students would go there. You would meet with some Japanese students and just have conversational English with them. And so I saw this flyer and I went to the registrar's office and said, I'm interested. And they said, oh, you know, that's really good. And then I said, why? She said, there's three places for this exchange program. And right now, there's only four people that applied. And I was like, what? <laughs> Because it just looked too good to be true. And also, quite frankly, even though I just told you that I had a clear plan of what I wanted to do, but one year after my bachelor, all of a sudden, sounded pretty good. You know, one more year to get more experience and also have some more time to think what I actually want to do. Japan was always a big fascination of mine. I don't want to now go too far into detail, but of course, with Germany's World War II history and trying to learn as much as I could growing up in Germany, I then went to the US, took a lot of history classes. I took two courses on World War II in the United States. And then also this part was quite fascinating for me to study in Japan, Japanese history and tradition, because what Japan has always been criticized for is that they dealt not properly or as open, like, for example, Germany, with all the terrible things that those countries did during World War II. And I just want to be clear, I think it's fair to say that Germany could have dealt with education and letting people know about you can always do it better. So I think there's also areas in Germany where the education and the public could have accepted it even more and even promoted it more that this could never happen again. I was intrigued by the fact in Japan, other than a lot of the things that actually 
fascinated me about Japan, starting from the different sports cultures of sumo wrestling and the uniqueness of baseball in Japan compared to the US. The language fascinated me. The food, of course, fascinated me. The geography. So I always wanted to know more about Japan. And so this was certainly one of the factors that uh, intrigued me. Yeah, Japan is definitely an interesting country with everything you mentioned. Even to me, going back to the samurais, right? The movies, which I always loved. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. Yeah. And I wonder how that then also helped shape your view and the next steps. So that's one. And second question, you mentioned you were on the top of your tennis game the last year. And for me, that was such a hard transition. And it seems like everyone I talk to on the podcast is disconnecting from the sport that means so much to you. How was that transition? Experience in Japan shaped me tremendously because I would say that humbleness and being willing to listen and learn from others is a core value of the Japanese culture. So having spent the previous five years in the United States, it was all about selling yourself. Who am I? I, 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 <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. I'm this, I'm that. And then all of a sudden you come to Japan and the notion of humbleness and being respectful to others is really, really important. I think that helped me a lot for the next step in my life. I would say the transition was relatively easy for me. I work with a lot of athletes in career transition, so I'm certainly aware of the tremendous challenges that athletes have after they finish their career. But why was it a bit easier for me, maybe? Because number one was when I came to Japan, it was really a complete different environment, like absolute, everything was different. You know, I mean, the language, the food, the culture, the way people communicate. So I was basically right away busy with the next challenge. I didn't have so much time to think about what I was missing. I was so much looking forward to take the next step. And another factor that is relevant was that I relatively quickly made peace with myself that at this stage, and this sounds maybe too, too bit exaggerated, but uh, that's just how I felt. I was happy with what I did in tennis. I was not willing to go then even further and to try my luck one more time on the tour. There were some thoughts, maybe I should try the doubles tour. But again, even that sounds much easier as it is. I mean, you need a partner. You need to travel the coordination. So I was quite happy with where I left tennis off. And I also volunteered and I coached in Japan as well, which was just an amazing experience, Clara, from the students that I had. I was coaching the university team. So this was a mixture of decent players and some players that would just play tennis for fun, but they were so respectful and they were, whatever you told them, they would do immediately. And this is obviously not necessarily something that we want or we expect from today's athletes that have all the right to question everything that you do, you know, when it comes to nutrition and lifting and being in shape. But there was this whole thing, wow, there's this German guy coming from the U.S., He's donating his time to show us what he thinks tennis is. So I was still a little bit connected on the coaching side 
already knowing, of course, that after my time in Japan, I would go back to the US. And at the time, it was clear that I'm going to stay in tennis on the coaching side. Mm-hmm. But somehow I managed to leave my playing career behind me uh, quite quickly. That sounds really fun, actually. You go from Japan and that culture back to the US that is very different. Also curious, you mentioned it was clear to you I was going to stay in tennis. How did you make that decision or what was clear to you about that? It's got something to do with what you mentioned earlier. Tennis was there throughout my life. And at the time, this sounds negative, but at the time it wasn't really negative. It was positive. I didn't really know anything else. This was my passion. I loved playing tennis. I loved coaching. Even in those years when I played college tennis, when I went back home over the summer, I would coach different club teams and so forth. So I really knew that I might be finished when it comes to tennis, when it comes to playing, but not finished with the sport of tennis. There was too much time and passion that I had invested previously that I knew that part, it was not done yet. And so fast forward, there was your one year in Japan, you came back to US. You mentioned you came back to Arkansas, but then got the job at UTA as an assistant coach for the women's and men's tennis team and then became the head coach. Yep. So I'm fast forwarding now to my era, Christian. I'm putting you on a spot here now because you and Marie ended up recruiting me to UTA. I'm curious, how do you actually see me as a tennis player and how was I from your perspective? Because I have my view about myself in my freshman year. But how was I as an athlete and how was it for you to coach me on the UTA tennis team? There's a lot of important points to be made. Number one, you were extremely motivated. You always wanted to train extra individually and you did you worked on your serve a lot on your own you were always looking outside of the team practice to get some extra work in so highly motivated i think in the one-on-one you were very coachable because there were always exchanges between us but you were always open to receive them i think in the team setting It was a bit different. I would say there, of course, the challenge for a lot of the coaches is that you try to focus on everybody, but not really on any particular individual special. And this is something where in hindsight, even at the time, Clara, when you were there then and when I was about to leave, I felt like we were not structured, meaning the UTA tennis program at the time under my leadership, we were not structured properly. And what I mean by that is when I looked at a lot of other programs already then, they much more moved to a system where they would work more individually with players. So the difference is, of course, you could argue, yeah, but every player had the opportunity to work individual. But the difference is that I expected that the players come forward and say that they want to work individually. And I think that's a mistake. I think the system should have been in place like some of the other programs already had, that you're working with three or four different coaches and you split them up and you have groups of two working together individually and drastically reduce the team practice. I think there's still a value in team practice for one to establish some type of team chemistry and that you maybe don't let that 
difference between a number one player like you were number one and two to become too big to your walk-on, for example, that is on the team because you're still on one team. So when you travel, you still want to feel like you're on the same team. But when it comes to getting the best out of your players, I think there should have been more individual work because in the end, yes, we're playing a team competition format, but during the team match, you're still on the court by yourself. There is nobody that can help you. I mean, yes, there's coaching college tennis during the match, but that's a whole other discussion that can be quite tricky. You expected a lot from yourself. I think that's how I got to know you. There were some setbacks with injuries. At the time, I don't know how we consider them. Were they major or minor injuries? But I know you had some problems, I think, with your shoulder and with your back. And of course, that can be very, very frustrating for a player who is motivated to do more and to get better, but then constantly has these type of injuries that then stop you from doing what you really wanted to do. As a freshman, I think you were very mature. There are certain areas that could have been different. You have no idea how it works, just like I didn't at the beginning. I would assume that in your second, third, fourth year, especially, you were much more at ease of maybe taking even more leadership in the doubles that you did at the beginning right away when you were a freshman. I still get emotional about my college tennis career. There's been so much. And one of the reasons I've been really excited to have this podcast with you and, and the conversation is I just have tremendous respect for you, Christian. You were able to mentally get me to a state where I was able to get a confidence. You were sort of my mental, <laughs> I don't know how to say it the right way. I guess mental support. You knew how to talk to me and get me out of my dark tunnel. And uh, really my best tennis, actually, that's when I played was that spring and the end of that first year, really right after you left, where I got to nationals. And uh, I actually lost in the second round against the girl who ended up winning the tournament. One thing maybe to ask a question on that, the confidence and mental toughness. And this is something we talk often with my partner, whom you met, actually, Trevor. He doesn't have an athletic background. And I think there's quite big differences. The talk about confidence and confidence in tennis and on the tennis court versus even confidence in life. And maybe even how people perceive confidence in different sports. Because um, if I compare myself as a tennis players and you even watch the tennis matches commentators talk about oh she missed number of points now her confidence is going down <laughs> this is a really fun discussion with my partners like what tennis players you would be what woozies you miss a few points and your confidence is down already <laughs> what the heck like if you compare to american football it's like you don't ever hear brady missed a throw or something like that and his confidence is down now Right. And then you translate it into life and you may think about it this similar way. Well, you lost a deal or you had a bad meeting and your confidence is going to go down. Like it doesn't completely translate. There's something about tennis and the confidence and how we as tennis players think about our confidence and attach it to the wins, to our performance, which we take very personally. So I'm curious about your perspective as a former tennis player 
And even now, as you work across the full scale in your later career and able to work closely with athletes from all different sports, what is your view and opinion on that? Where tennis is certainly different or where it's unique is that when it comes to confidence, obviously confidence is important in every sport, but in a tennis match, some of the matches that you won, you made 20, 30 unforced errors, but you ended up winning the match. So what I want to say is that in tennis, even though you might play a, a good match or you might have played well, you still made a lot of mistakes. In a lot of other sports, athletes can't really afford to make one mistake, right? Like, for example, we talk about alpine skiing and you're missing a gate, the race is over, you're out, right? How many tennis matches have you and I seen where all of a sudden a player uh, really struggles with his or her serve and maybe serves four or five doubles in a row? <laughs> that is, at that level, really shocking and really unusual. However, you can still win. You can still win the match. So in tennis, you can make great mistakes, but you can still win. So in athletics, in a sprint, If you're completely late on the start and the other started a split second before you, it's already hard to catch up to the rest of the field. So your mindset in tennis that no matter how many mistakes I'm making, I'm always in the match until the last point is played. This is a quite unique dynamic, I would say. You look at European football or even the NFL, it doesn't matter. If there's two minutes left in the game and you're up 27 to nothing, the game is over. In tennis, this is not the case. And we see this, we just saw it again at, at the Australian Open where you had constant comebacks from players that were two sets down on the men's side and a 4-1 or on the women's side, a 6-1, 5-1. There's not many sports that have this type of scoring format that actually makes it so important that you keep a cool head because... You never lost until the point is over, right? In football, in, in European football, if you're down 4-0 in the 90th minute and you're completely frustrated and you're fouling an opponent because of frustration, this is accepted by a lot of people because a lot of people will say, well, you know, it was over anyway. He's frustrated, so he fouled. In tennis, I would say your coach will still say, if you're down 6-1 for one and you're just starting to tank your match, That's not smart because you can still win, right? So your mindset has to be completely different. You have to get to the point where you can accept as difficult as it sounds, but you need to accept the easiest of mistakes. And we see it all the time. I mean, you know, Rafael Nadal missed two really, really easy overheads. I mean, something in a crucial match that... Nobody ever thought that he would miss balls like, but this, everybody does that. So yeah, you need to be aware of it and, uh, and you need to be able to fuel it in a positive way. Yeah. Thank you for that example. That explains a lot in tennis. Like it always seemed in some way, it's a game of energy, personal energy as well, because sometimes those two couple misses, depending how, I personally react to them. They may give way more confidence to the opponent at that point. And then it's a lot of believing in yourself. And because you just have that one opponent at that moment, it's, uh, yeah, there's that aspect of what energy are you showing and how are you showing up on the court to not 
give even the other person more confidence to believe in them because that makes your game way harder. So that dynamic is interesting. Anything on the mental toughness or confidence? What I wrote down here is also consistency, believing in yourself. There was another thing that I don't know if you knew the trick. I'm actually curious if you do. (laughs) Maybe you can share it with me still. In the spring, right when you were leaving after you left, I was able to achieve the most amount of consistency. I think that is the one thing I was missing. And consistency meaning even if I didn't get eight hours of sleep, I had to study or I was tired, I knew how to switch my head into more of this performance mindset, which I took tennis. It's a job. I'm here to get the job done. And no matter how I'm feeling, this is sort of a zone that I'm playing in. And that allowed me to move through the match in a more stable way and have this performance consistency mindset. And I was able to win more matches in a row and get the good winning record. Do you remember how you were able to help me coach through that? Or as you have a view of the big sports any tips you have observed from other athletes how to get into that zone? One thing that changed already in your first year was from the very beginning, you were more on the mindset of I'm in control of the match and I'm going to dictate the point with my play. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't take you too long in order to understand that sometimes when those strokes aren't working, when the serve is not working or when the powerful ground strokes are not working. There needs to be a plan B to adjust. And I can remember a couple of matches, Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly against whom, where you were willing within the match to actually go away from your bread and butter play of being aggressive to actually just see, hey, let's put the ball in play and uh, let's see what's going to happen. I think establishing the match to start with shots that you feel really comfortable with and to get some rhythm or some consistency, this is something that is also cross sports that many athletes try. Some of them are are better at it than others. I've read quite a bit about uh, Tom Brady and what he does is usually what he prefers to do at the beginning of a game. He tries to throw or the plays are called in a way that the first couple of throws are quite easy. So they're makeable. He's not taking big risks. So in getting those easy throws in, it boosts his confidence that in order later on in the game, he can become more aggressive. It's tricky because on the one side, I want to say it's always important that you play your game. That's clear. So if you can be aggressive and you can dictate the point, I think you should However, like I said, in some of those days where the things just don't seem to fall our way, there needs to be a plan B or maybe even a plan C. It's very difficult in tennis because you're there by yourself. In a lot of team sports, you have a lot of teammates that can pick you up, that can basically protect you maybe from making a lot of mistakes earlier. But we've all seen it with many players. What do you do if you start off double faulting? At the very beginning of the match, you start double faulting. When you talk to the players, it's not like the players are trying to double fault. They are trying to make the serve, and then they even take some off, and they're still double faulting. 
that's when what I just said sounds so easy when I think, okay, think about what you're doing well or how you usually do it to get those balls in. If it then doesn't work on the court in the stressful moments, that's when it's really difficult in tennis because you can never really take a timeout and you can take a bathroom break. But that's about it. Uh, you still have to execute yourself. Yeah. One more thing I have written here is rest and recovery. And to give an example from the college years, I remember one day showing up. It was before one of our matches and I was really tired. I studied all night. I had an exam and I came running to the tennis practice. I think I was a few minutes late and um, you saw me being tired and you actually told me, you know what, just go take a break. Don't practice today. You're already tired. You don't need to be here with the team. You need to get rest, recover, and play the match tomorrow, which to me was so shocking at that point. I didn't think you were being serious for five, 10 minutes. Also because it's unusual. We have a full team practice. But inside of me, I knew it was the right decision because I was so exhausted and I was not going to do any good quality work on the court. Looking back, I've actually always had to have more coaches who told me to stop and uh, tell me you need to take a break instead of driving me to work harder because I already worked hard and then if you drive me to work harder I eventually overwork which is what happened second and third year and that really escalated all of my injuries at that point so This is something I'm still learning up until today. Obviously, as we grow older, the rest and recovery is even more important, even though I'm not a professional athlete. My own personal workouts, I get a lot of injuries. So how do I not push my body to the extremes? And with the age, the extremes become smaller and smaller because the pain I used to be able to push through 10, 15 years ago is very different. And if I push through it now, I suffer for it way more than 10, 15 years ago. How do you look at the importance of the recovery now or even back then or maybe even when you compare it to when you were on the tennis team and played yourself? This might surprise you, Clara, but I think even in the area of recovery and rest, I didn't feel like I did a good job. I think there's explanations for it. There's no excuses. But I think this is the trickiest part as a college coach is that you constantly have this mix of a team, team concept, but it's an individual sport. You are being paid to run practice, to be on the court with your athletes. That's one of the reasons why you got paid. And again, I'm talking about the mindset at the time. This might have changed now. But the hardest thing, I think, for a coach is to convince self-motivated athletes like you or, or players that really want to play that they should play less. I think that is... Probably the hardest part to get across, I think the traditional one where you feel like some of your players do not put in the work, they should train more, they should invest more. That's pretty much straight up. You can sit down, you can have a conversation and you say, listen, you're not practicing as hard as I think I should. You're not in physical shape and so forth. That is relatively easy. What is really, really hard is to convince people to do less in order to achieve more. And the struggle that you can get in as a coach is, again, that you're constantly comparing how is the team doing overall 
compared to how are the individuals doing. Because, of course, it can be quite sensitive if you give a couple of players a couple of days off, but from the others, you expect them to be there. There we come again to the team dynamics, where then all of a sudden your captain or other people on the team, rightfully so, might argue, but why are you making special rules for special people? So this is really, really challenging. I'm still connected to a lot of players that from when I played or that played college tennis. And I think the successful ones, what I hear a lot of times is that at some point in their career, they became so self-motivated that they ended up doing too much. Maybe not too much training, because for me, rest and rehab is part of training. That's really, really important that you consciously set time aside to recover and basically to do less things when it's the right timing, less things on the court, but do active resting, like be aware why am I resting and how am I resting? So I'm not talking about being exhausted from classes and court and go to your dorm and just sleep. That's also important sometimes, but that is not necessarily effective resting for me. So That, I would say, is one of the biggest challenges for college tennis coaches to make sure that you assess the situation correctly, who needs a little bit more rest, who needs maybe a little bit kick in the butt to do more. Because it's also subjective, right? Yes. A lot of players that I talked to and said, hey, I think you should do more, they might not have necessarily agreed. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. Right. What you mentioned, the team balance, that's the hard thing. How do you explain one to another and how do you make something that's in a way team focused, but at the same time, very individualistic. And that was partly the problem with some of the trainings, because even after you left, I trained a lot on my own in the mornings. I made time for training, but then in the afternoon, We still put a lot of volume where we had three-hour trainings from two to five. And that volume, the also problem with the team coaching in the afternoon, because if it's not individualized enough, you're just training for volume, but not necessarily training to either improve your strengths or your weaknesses. Yeah. So how do you use that volume effectively? to where it's actually benefiting all the players on the team. It's almost impossible, right? It's really hard to design drills that way. So I understand the difficulty with managing that whole team, especially if you don't have enough assistant coaches or you don't have big volunteering program to then support that. It's really hard for one or even two people to design a really good practice where majority of the players are benefiting from that amount of volume in the afternoon in the most effective way. Yeah. If I could do it over again, I would drastically reduce the time of the team practices. I would maybe go more into the weight room as a team. That's fine. Then you can also get some team chemistry, but I would drastically reduce the team practice on court. And one thing that I should have also known from my own experience is that All of the national players, or most of them, I know in the Czech Republic, you have also, of course, team competitions, but the vast majority of the players, they really come over as individuals. They don't have a lot of experience in this whole team concept. All of the international players that come over, 
whether it's in their club or in their region or in their nation, they were one of the best players. And then they come into a team and then all of a sudden a coach that they never met is telling them, okay, you're going to play number five. Based on what? Yeah. With that generation or that group that I had with Simri and uh, Monica, also both had major injury problems. But at the beginning, how do you decide who is playing where? Completely different styles. And all of the players, they grew up thinking, hey, I was really good back home. Well, all of a sudden, you have six players that were really good when they were home. Then you have to look at the personalities and think, how am I making the lineup? Right. In that period, we were really struck with the injury quite a bit to where at times I had almost no matches to go by because half of the team didn't play in the fall, for example. Sometimes the lineup was made, well, you know, you didn't play in the fall, so that's why you're going to play number five. Mm. Well, is that really fair? If that player is still better than the one that played all four, probably not. It's probably not fair. But you have to have some type of criteria Mm. that you take into consideration as a coach. So, yeah, some of the learnings are clear, much less team practice on court, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I'm realizing we're running over time here. I wanted to check in with you. Do you have a hard stop in 10 minutes? I'm fine. I'm flexible. Okay. Tennis college is really fun, but maybe move over to your later part and highlight the Olympic sports. But before we do that, anything else you would want to wrap up with or message to get out into the world to all of the other tennis college coaches? Any advice as you look back at your coaching career you would want to share? I think it's still a spectacular program or idea. I could still recommend it to everybody that is not sure if they want to play pro or players that know they want to continue with playing tennis. I think it's still an incredible experience that everybody uh, should take that loves tennis and that wants to get to know a different culture. What I would want to say to the players and to the coaches, I think the health aspect and the post-career impact, that is a concern, okay? So the recommendation would be to monitor the health and the wear and tear it takes on the body. Like I said, I still talk to a lot of people that did that. A lot of them will probably second my thoughts that they had an incredible experience. However, most of them also say that they are to this day struggling with their body, whether it's their hips or their back or their knees or what have you, their shoulder. So I think coaches really have to take care of the players and through education, players also have to be even more responsible for their own body because the trick with tennis is if you look at a lot of the statistics when it comes to severe injuries, tennis scores really, really low on severe injuries during the career. But it's the post-career injuries and the lingering effect of the wear and tear that we see about 10 years after the career. And even if it's just a chronic tendinitis that will never go away in your ankle or in your elbow. A lot of these things, they're not on the radar as much as they should be, that we can train differently because we only have this one body that we need to have for the rest of of our lives. So I think that would be one thing, really, really take care of your body 
as much as you can. So when I first came to the US and I heard about all these restrictions about the amount of time that uh, athletes can spend on the court, that's actually a good thing. And maybe it should be reduced or maybe shifted to other things like recovery period that it's built in. Because I think even now when you see a lot of the greats on television that used to play on the professional level, they also struggle with this. I mean, you see them how they get out of their chair or when they present trophies on the center stage, when they walk. And it seems like everybody has hip problems or back problems. And the game is tricky. Tennis is tricky because, like I said, compared to American football or football, very rarely you will have drastic injuries during your career. But after the career, all of a sudden, all these things show up and you're all of a sudden thinking, oh man, I should have done it differently. That's actually a great topic to close this with and 100% resonate, maybe just to share my own experience. Curious if it happens to you now. After college, I was so beat up. I literally felt I was 24 years old and I felt like an 80-year-old grandma. It took me about three hours in the morning to warm up my body and walk things off so I'm not limping and My very last year, I couldn't play without 8 to 12 ibuprofen a day. So I felt like I'll never do anything really high agility. And I only did yoga for two years, which was probably very smart. I think it rebuilt my body back to where I actually now do CrossFit. And the weird thing with CrossFit, which I laugh because it's very efficient. Now I design my own CrossFit workouts. We have a gym at home. And I'm sometimes surprised how much weight my body still can lift. But when I go back on the tennis court and I schedule my hits with a girl, she just played high school here. I mainly just hit the ball back to her. So she hits it back on my side and I get some run on the court. I actually get the worst injuries back from going back on the court and playing. My body just can't handle it. I get my old knee pains, my old Achilles, my ankle, like all of the bad pains that I had back in college when I start hitting just easily, <laughs> not with any high activity. After a few tennis sessions, I start getting injuries. So the last one I had was my hip that hurt back in October. And I still can't get rid of this <laughs> freaking hip pain, but I'm not paranoid and really nervous to go back on the court because I just got back to where I can do my crossfit and I'm worried that my tennis game will make it even worse. Curious, how is your body handling tennis or if you go still hit tennis and do you feel the pains from going back on a tennis court hurt you more than any other activity? Yeah, you're 100% right. Not doing too well physically. I mean, with the hip and with the knees, I had surgery number nine on my knee in October major cartilage damage because I still played tennis in the league as late as this past year, July 2020. And I re-injured my knee, then had surgery, meniscus, cartilage, major surgery. I was out. I was on crutches for about two months. I'm really struggling in the recovery. And by doing the rehab for the knee, a lot of the older injuries show up, meaning the back and even the shoulder So yeah, I don't think I will be going back on the tennis court playing because I've given it 10, 11, 12, 13 chances when I was injured and I took some break and I got back into decent shape and I thought, I convinced myself I can play again 
And uh, the problem is that the mind still thinks you can execute, but your body is not on the same page. So mm -hmm. I can completely relate to what you're saying. I mean, my elbow seems to have this memory somewhere deep ingrained, meaning my elbow in, in the daily life is completely fine. Yeah. As soon as I hit three or four regular serves, all of a sudden, I feel like when I had a tennis elbow 15, 20 years ago. So somehow this muscle memory or pain memory, the body doesn't forget. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe it's just the movement that we used to do so much. If you go back to the movement, the body of that specific movement is tired and start bringing up all the bad pains. But if you do other sports, maybe the movement is different and the pain doesn't awaken with some of those other activities. That's my hypothesis. I'm not sure if it makes sense or is true, but yeah. So moving on to your, what sounds just such an amazing and fun job being part of the Olympic committee and helping behind the scenes to organize all of the Olympics and something that athletes across the world train for. How was that? What would you want to highlight from that job? It was definitely a fascinating time of my life. Most athletes that compete at the Olympics, they're amateurs. And I say that with all respect, and I don't mean it exactly like how I said it, meaning they train like professionals. And they, in most people's understanding, they are professional, but they are not necessarily earning a living by what they do. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you could say no, but Christian, there's NBA basketball players that play in the Olympics, and there is golf players in the Olympics, and there's tennis players in the Olympics right. that earn a very good living in what they do, being a professional athlete. But I'm talking about the vast majority of the athletes, your wrestlers, your swimmers, your track and field athletes. Basically, they work and live like a professional, but they don't necessarily earn enough money for this to be the only thing that they do. And of course, in every sport, you have a couple of athletes that can earn a living in what they do. But I'm talking about in the Summer Olympics, we have 10,500 athletes that compete. And on the winter side, about 3,000. And I would say only about 20% of the 10,500 can earn a living and set some money aside for their post-athletic career. So the others, they rely on support from their National Olympic Committee or from their federation. And for a lot of sports, it's quite unique. You know, as a tennis player, I think it's even extreme to comprehend that the way you plan your season is in four years increments. So you're trying to be at your best performance every four years. And if anything happens in between, and let's say you cannot compete in one of the editions, you might never get to go to compete because maybe eight years from now, you just won't qualify or you're not good enough anymore. As a tennis player, you play a tournament, you lose second round. Well, guess what? On Monday, you have the next tournament where you can make money. You can play another Grand Slam and so forth. So for a lot of the athletes on the Olympic program, the sports on the Olympic program, The Olympic Games are the highlight of their career and they are working towards that goal. And then if something happens when their performance is going down or they get injured, there's some very, very sad stories. But seeing the athletes then when they arrive, they qualify for the Olympics to see it in their eyes at the opening ceremony and when they see the facilities, 
and everything goes well, it's extremely satisfying to see that you can bring a lot of joy into athletes' lives. Yeah. I'm curious, how is it to work behind the scenes and organize the whole thing? You shared previously some stories about the previous Olympic Games. Any fun stories you want to share with the world about the preparation and all the huge amount of work that goes with organizing the events and in the rotating countries, right? Because you deal with the different cultures and you have to get the whole venue set up and everything prepared. It's just amazing amount of undertaking. It's a huge project. On the positive side, you got seven years just up until the latest election. This was true. But in general, we can say you got seven years to organize each Olympic edition. Usually the games are awarded seven years in advance. This was the system the last 60 years ago, just up upon recently when the IOC decided to give the next Olympic Summer Games to Paris in 2024 and then to Los Angeles in uh, 2028. So there, Los Angeles has 10 years to prepare for the game. So you have a lot of time to prepare, which is needed because if you are looking at a world championship in a certain sport, you're basically organizing one world championship at one location for about a week or two. Well, at the Olympic Games on the summer side, you're basically trying to organize 30 world championships within a period of three weeks. So the complexity when it comes to travel, the Olympic village where the athletes sleep and eat can be very complex. In summer, you always have your five continents, 204 national Olympic committees, so 204 countries that participate. So the planning is tremendous. Just if you look at the cafeteria, you need to have all ethnic foods, you need to be aware of your cultures. Some athletes, because their cultures, they don't eat certain types of meats or even the way the food is being prepared. You need to be able to offer everything that the athletes can prepare how they usually would at home. Another unique part of the Olympic Games is that you always have the best athletes in the world, while at the same time, you will have a number of athletes that When it comes to the level, they're really far behind. In the World Championship, the field is usually much denser than at the Olympic Games because the IOC uses this notion of universality, which means that you want to have athletes from all continents and, if possible, for example, in athletics or swimming, from all countries. And so, of course, the difference sometimes between the first-place athlete and the last-place athlete can be quite big which then also can create some really, really fun stories when you see a Michael Phelps talking to a swimmer that has just started swimming when he was 13, 14 years old because he didn't have an Olympic-sized pool or even a 25-meter pool to practice. So you see a lot of great stories from athletes exchanging. One of the craziest stories I was involved with was in Sochi in 2014 for the Olympic Winter Games. The day before the Alpine downhill race, the weather was quite challenging and we ran out of salt to prepare the field of play, the slopes for the Alpine downhill mans. And so we tried to come up with a way how we can get more salt to the mountain region. And there was a rule in Russia at the time that material for construction or preparation of the roads and so forth, which the salt for the snow was in the category can only come from Russia. But we could not find this type of salt 
in such a short period of time in Russia. So through connections, we talked to the International Ski Federation and one of their board members is the owner of the National Bulgarian Airline. And he offered that we can use this transporter airplane to get salt overnight to Russia. And this whole pathway was just incredible because that plane at night left Sochi, went to Switzerland to a salt factory that picked up tons and tons of salt and then came back overnight back to Sochi and delivered the salt. Now, there was this rule that you cannot import salt for construction purposes. So when we were at the border control and the Russian officials asked what the salt is for, we declared it as salt for meals. So there was an Italian restaurant on top in Sochi and we said that this salt is for the Italian restaurant because spices you were able to import into Russia. So of course, everybody with a clear mind would ask, but how do you need 30 tons of salt for one restaurant in Russia? But obviously everybody looked away and therefore we saved the Alpine competitions. There's more to the story because originally this salt was mined in Pakistan So we created this T-shirt the day when we saved the Olympic Games from Sochi to Pakistan to Switzerland back to Russia. It just goes to show you how much effort and work can be behind just to save one competition. Wow, that's so amazing. It's such a fun story. Thank you for sharing that. It highlights the amazing amount of effort and undertaking and creative problem solving you need to have just on spot when things like this happen. Yes. To give you more background on it, I will send you an article from the New York Times. So this story made the front page of the New York Times in 2014, how assault saved the Olympic Games. And there's much more detail in it for personal interest. You can read up on it and the whole crazy pathway of this salt throughout three continents is going to be explained. So... Yeah, quite, quite crazy. Oh, I'm even thinking, how do you get the network of people to actually make something like that happen so quick? You all must have really good contacts and figured out how to make people work together for this one cause to make the skiing event a success. The Russian organizer, when it comes to organizing the sports competitions, They were really, really good. And then the collaboration with the IOC was good. And then the International Federation, in this case, the International Skiing Federation, the FIS, um, everybody immediately jumped on the phone and tried to figure out a way how we can solve this. And even though sometimes with Sochi, there were long discussions of how things should be done about processes and so forth. But when everybody realized that we're running the risk of having to cancel a competition, which at the Olympic Games is not an option. Everybody came to the table and there was no more like, oh, but why are we using a Bulgarian plane? Why are we going to Switzerland? Why are we coming back to Russia? So everybody was on the same page in a, if this is what we have to do, this is what we're going to do. Yes, it's amazing. Even just the decision-making, you all are able to come up with this and agree this is the plan let's get it done and we're moving forward right the speed of it as a team i think that's impressive anything you want to highlight from the olympic games where there are specific ones that were really difficult to put together or which one were some of the most challenging 
Sochi was challenging because we went into a very mountain area with elevation of up to 5,000 meters where we never had a lot of experience when it comes to outdoor snow events. So from that point of view, it was quite challenging. The geographical position of Sochi is also quite unique because it's very close to the Georgia border. So there had to be a lot of security and safety measures in order to guarantee safe Olympic Games. And this is a little bit the theme, like also looking to Pyeongchang in 2018. Pyeongchang was very close. I think it's about 40 kilometers from the North Korean border. Obviously, you want to guarantee all of the athletes and all of the participants a safe environment. And of course, when you first start getting into working in sports, working in the sports department, I was so naive thinking, well, we just have to make sure that the competitions run smoothly and that the athletes have whatever they need and that the scorers and the officials that they have everything that they need. But then all of a sudden you realize we're at certain locations where you need to be able to guarantee the safe execution of these games. And so, of course, you need to become much, much more wider and you get into topics that you never thought you would that are necessary. I remember actually reading even some of the article about the Sochi and some of the challenges. I'm assuming there are challenges with each of the Olympic events and, as you mentioned, geographical or cultural. To me, it sounds such a fun job. You're eventually problem-solving and you have to adjust your style to every single culture and location to make things happen and execute on it smoothly. Yes. In my view, it seems high-paced, always problem-solving, quite thrilling, exciting. What made you say, I'm done, this is my end, I'm now going to move to Germany and uh, start my own company? I think the number one reason was family. We had two kids at the time in 2016, a six-year-old and a two-year-old, and it was time to think about where they want to go to school. That was the number one factor, and I felt comfortable enough that with the tremendous experience that I got at the IOC, I've worked there for seven years, that I had the tools and had enough knowledge to, if need to be, to stand on my own feet and to talk to international federations about how sport should be presented. This is one part that is out of the scope of today, but the importance of sports presentation. How do you present your sport? How do you make it more attractive? How do you get people to come and watch your event? You might not be a big fan of that sport, but maybe you can create an atmosphere with technology, for example, which is your area. But how can you, for example, through the use of technology, engage more with the public? How to create a festive atmosphere at a sporting event? This is always something that the IOC is trying to do. For example, at the FIFA World Cup, FIFA is doing an excellent job in creating uh, fan festivals all over the country where the World Cup is. So you see people out on the street, uh, you have concerts everywhere. This is something that the Olympics have not quite achieved yet. So your idea of public viewing in the Olympics has not really happened yet. The Olympic Games are consumed at home, at home on your TV screen, on your tablet and so forth. But very rarely will you talk to a friend and say, hey, come on, buddy, let's go to a bar and watch the Olympic Games. This is something that, for example, FIFA has done a much better job at when the FIFA World Cup is taking place, where we could also take uh, the NFL and the Super Bowl. A lot of people 
go out in public and watch the event by themselves. At the Olympics, it's a little bit different, but there is uh, definite initiatives underway that is trying to create formats or events where maybe people one day will come together and say, hey, let's watch this on a big screen together. What does your ideal vision look like for your company and your consulting? If somebody's listening to the podcast, what would you want to attract that's unique and really help them materialize? That there is so many sports out there that are really fascinating and fun to do because that's really one of the goals that is being missed a lot of times because we focus on the media and we focus on marketing and we focus on high-performance sport, the best in the world, the world champion, the Olympic champion. It's really to show also the public that there is such a vast amount of sports. There's over 100 international federations that are organized in a way where we could say these are true sports. In addition, you have a number of other activities, whether it's in the fitness area with the different styles and things that people do. So one is to expose the world to the point that to stay active and to see how many great sports are out there. Because a lot of times, and I think this is the same in the US and in Europe, right now the media attention between the four years is only focusing on a few sports. Very rarely will you get the opportunity to see wrestling or fencing or equestrian, any of these sports on television. So the Olympic Games gives them a platform to show, hey, these sports are out there and maybe... For a lot of the young people, sometimes when they see the Olympics, that's one of the means that they have to see, hey, this looks really cool. Kids stay active and uh, and get into sport. That is great. I obviously love sports. The more people we can attract and participate, the better. I agree. I realize I'm running over my promised time and we can talk probably for hours. I just want to be mindful of your time because it's getting late in Germany. Open mic, what else would you like to share, Christian? Anything about your company now, what you're doing, or technology and sports, or what do you see we should be doing more of, less of? Yeah, something that I find fascinating is uniqueness of sport in the area of ethics. Mm -hmm. Sport is under such a close microscope compared to any other job or profession that I can think of. And there's three areas to it but I'll just maybe focus on a couple. One is the area of anti-doping and performance-enhancing drugs. Sport is the only walk of life where there is an organization specifically established to monitor and to test that the employees or the athletes in this case don't use performance-enhancing drugs. In a lot of other walks of life in business, in entertainment, and so forth. It's all about the performance and the result. As long as you stay within the law, obviously, and there's a lot of countries where certain drugs are illegal, but the difference in sport is there is a specific catalog of what is allowed to use or not to use in athletics, in sports. And so we don't question a lot of another walk of life because we know that In a lot of other professions, people take performance-enhancing drugs, and this is accepted. This is accepted by the society and is quite unique. In business, as long as you don't violate a national law, 
and the results are good or you don't violate your specific business ethics like an insider trading or something, as long as the results are good, your stakeholders are happy. In sport, that is not the case because if you violate against the anti-doping rules, then very quickly you are being singled out by society and you could argue rightfully so because sports should be clean and I agree with that, but it's just very unique. If we look at sportsmanship and gamesmanship, for example, this is another unique thing in sports. If you look at Novak Djokovic, for example, there is currently this, I would say, disturbing trend. Obviously, I think Novak Djokovic is very popular in his home country and in a few countries in that area. However, it seems to be quite a fashionable trend to throw him under the bus because certain people think in the area of sportsmanship and gamesmanship, he's not fair or he's not following the rules. Well, this subjective, but I think he's following the rules. Mm. He's doing the things that he does within the rules. Otherwise, he would be penalized. So, yes. yes, he's taking his bathroom breaks. He's taking his injury timeouts. But these are all in the rules. Right. He's starting to become, in certain areas, quite a negative reputation. In business, a business that is following all the rules and has positive results, like a Novak Djokovic, is seen by the public as being a very positive and successful entity. Mm. So what I mean is in sports, athletes are being looked at in, under a microscope. Everything is being analyzed, how they do it. So it's not enough to win within the rules because mm. that's what Novak Djokovic is doing. He's not violating any rules. You almost have to be above the rules. Yeah. You even have to be better than the rules in order for the people to embrace you and to love you. Yes. I love that example. And what comes into mind is Federer in his way of presenting and just being. And the word that comes into mind is noble. And this is also something we talk about often with my partner, is as a society, we love building people up and kind of lifting them up and making them great and cheering. But sometimes it seems when they have too much greatness, as a society, we start tearing them down. Take it with Brady. He's got so many Super Bowls, just amazing quarterback. And oh gosh, Brady won again. And that happened also to Federer at some point of time when he was dominating the game, right? Everybody was cheering and then he started winning too many grand slams. And They were like, oh, gosh, Federer is going to win again. And I think Novak is now in a similar boat because of his performance the past few years. And I would say also his personality. And I think his personality is very much related as what I know, the Serbian culture and being from Serbia. It's authentic. It's who they are. And I agree with you. If you know the rules and playing within the rules, It shouldn't be something to be criticized for because that is what the rules are for. And as an athlete, in order to be smart and strategic, you want to take advantage of all the rules you have and take the breaks when you need them. And that is actually something to command on being smart about it and really know what is important to put yourself together, get your mindset back on track and win at the end, hopefully. Yes. 
you're not happy, you got to change the rules. <laughs> right. Because he's following the rules. And of course, what he's struggling with is the benchmark with Federer and also Rafael Nadal when it comes to sportsmanship is so high that people compare him to them. This is where we are today. We have the best player in the world that in his private life and in his community does everything right, is an upstanding guy. And he's got this strategic thing that he believes gives him an edge, but it's inside the rule, but he's being crucified for it. And that's crazy. Yeah. Again, we can still then have our preference. Oh, I like him better. I like uh, her better. That's fine. But, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about an athlete that is following the rules. Again, if everybody feels so strongly about it, let's change the rules. Yeah. Let's say you cannot take a bathroom break anymore. Well, <laughs> this is going to be funny then if somebody really has to go and use the bathroom. He's <laughs> um, following the rules and people expect the number one in the world to behave a certain way but looking back at when I grew up compared to a lot of players the way he behaves he still behaves as a good sportsman everybody's unique and certainly that then shows on the court sometimes but I think people are going a bit too far with it yeah I agree what stands out to me about Novak is his humor in keeping things playful and fun. And when I watch all the exhibitions, that seems to be the narrative he's trying to do for the sport and for the fans, and he's very good at it. And sometimes I feel that that is a thing that wraps people wrong. And I think this is quite a bit cultural because I think jokes and humor can be very cultural. I say the jokes we have in Czech Republic by no way translate to US and are funny at all. So there's also something to be aware of. Yeah. When we're thinking about athletes and, and the culture and the way they carry themselves and yes. navigate the professional sport. Yes. Christian, I probably have questions for another hour and uh, I want to be mindful of your family time and dinner time. Anything else you would like to close off? Anything we should be doing more of, less of from your sports management perspective or even as a society in general? I'm glad we didn't talk too much about the corona pandemic because it certainly does have an impact. But what's the important message I have during this time, I think, is we should all focus on what we can do right now rather than constantly complaining what we cannot do. Sport has been hit quite hard through the pandemic. However, when it comes to staying active, I think it's very dangerous for a lot of people to use it as an excuse. For example, in Germany, All of the swimming pools are closed. So for the people that are passionate about swimming and where they get their exercise in, they should, for this short period, try to go out and walk or do some power walking. Focus on the things that you can do rather than to get frustrated about the things that you cannot do. Because we're here in Germany. It feels like a one-year lockdown now already. And sport is suffering greatly on the grassroots level because all of the facilities are closed, but nobody is stopping you still from riding your bicycle or from walking, from jogging, cross-country skiing. So let's focus on the things that you can do rather than getting frustrated about things that you cannot do. Yeah, or even just being at home. People often complain, oh, gyms are closed. It's like there's a lot of things you can do just with your body weight at home. Even doing push-ups or squats or anything else, sit-ups, it's something. And something is better than nothing. Let's create new rules and 
mindset and be creative with what is it that you have a space for and is allowed. It's going to make your mindset and brain happier than thinking about the negatives. I agree. Yes. Thank you so much. Give my regards to Marie and the family and hope we'll be able to meet again at some point. Thank you so much, Clara, for having me. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye.